Chapter thirty five of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty five. I do not understand you, Morton. Encouraged by Sir Everard's kindness, and stimulated by hints from Lady Frances, Lord Beville appeared at Fairview not once, but many times, before his sister's long visit came to an end. Dulcie received him graciously as her friend's brother, but the vainest of men could hardly have imagined himself peculiarly favoured or chosen out from the herd, so evident was the girl's unconsciousness of his admiration and calm indifference to himself. She only recognised his existence as Fanny's brother. She lived in a world apart from his, taking no interest in his occupations and amusements. How could two beings whose minds were so differently formed ever be brought into tender or sympathetic relations? Beville might adore Dulcie with a reverent love, looking up to her as his bright particular star. But how was Dulcie to let herself down to the level of a young man whose billiard-playing was his most intellectual accomplishment, and who from October to April spent five days out of the seven following somebody's hounds, and sighed for nothing higher or more noble in life than to have a pack of his own to follow. "'If I could but afford to hunt the country,' he said to his sister with a sigh, "'I know they'd all like me for their MFH.' Oh, "'Of course they would, dear,' answered Francis. And if, if you could marry a nice girl with plenty of ready money, you could take the hounds next year. I know Sir James Pryor is tired of them. There's only one girl I would give sixpence for, and she will never have me, sighed Beville. His sister began to think he was right. Dulcie, who had so loved Morton, never could or would stoop to the lower level of an unintellectual lover. Beville's good looks, Beville's good heart, went for nothing with a girl of highly cultivated mind to whom intellectual society was a necessity. Frances stayed at Fairview nearly five weeks, Sir Everard seeming always loath to let her go, and Dulcie clinging to her with ever-increasing affection. She had done much to win the girl to temporary forgetfulness of her grief, but the grief remained all the same, an abiding fact which no arts of Francis Grange could cure. Sorrow had set a seal upon the fair young face, and had given a new character to Dulcie's girlish beauty. To the eye of Arthur Haldimond, that pale and pensive countenance seemed the face of a martyr. He could picture just such a face, heavenly calm, amidst the carnage of a Roman amphitheatre. The day came when Francis protested that she positively must go home. The dear, patient Sheik had been shamefully neglected, and his daughter must not stay away from him another hour. "'But if you suppose you're going to get rid of me altogether, Dulcie, you are vastly mistaken,' protested Frances as she kissed her friend. "'I shall ride over to see you three or four times a week, and I insist upon your driving those underworked porpoises of yours to Blatchmarden on the off days. We are miserable paupers, but I can give you a cup of tea.' and if Sir Everard will come with you sometimes, I shall be ever so proud. Oh, you know how little chance there is of that, Fanny. He seldom leaves his study now except for a lonely walk in the shrubberies. I know he mopes horribly, and that is the very way to make him a confirmed invalid. 
you ought to rouse him out of his solitary habits dulcie he is so clever so superior to any one i know it's a shame he should lead such a hermit's life certainly there is hardly any one within twenty miles of osthorpe fit to associate with him unless it be this mr haldimond who seems tremendously clever yes he is clever and earnest and good i wish my dear father would make a friend of him well perhaps he will in time if he finds that you like him and are interested in his work and now good-bye darling but remember it isn't because i'm returning to the path of filial duty that you and i are to be parted my life henceforward will oscillate between blatchmardon and fairview the many-coloured month of may was drawing to a close by this time hawthorns whitened the woods and hedges and filled the lanes with perfume all the gardens were golden with berberis and wallflowers and all the woodland glades were blue with wild hyacinths the cuckoo had become a nuisance and the skylark monotonously melodious while the two industrious woodpecker creaked and tapped and screwed to a maddening extent in every hollow beech tree the little rustic world of osthorpe was completely beautiful in its glory of spring blossoms shining under sunny skies and gently ruffled by softest west winds but perhaps only the village children were any the happier for all this beauty or enjoyed themselves at this free banquet table that nature had spread for them for the grown-up people there was ever some cloud of care that shadowed the vivid colour of the flowers and darkened the glory of the sun morton had slowly regained health and strength in body and mind it had been a difficult and laborious recovery attended by intense depression of spirits he came back to life reluctantly like a man who felt that death would have been a happy escape from a world of trouble but youth and nature were stronger than the patient's will the wild delusions of a fevered brain gradually departed and left the dreamer face to face with stern reality natural sleep refreshed the worn-out frame the prolonged idleness of convalescence tranquillised the overwrought mind and before the rose-flushed hawthorn bloom had faded morton was able to pursue the usual tenor of his industrious life during that weary period of recovery lizzie hardman had shared with aunt dora in all the duties of nurse attendant and companion upon lizzie indeed had fallen the greater part of the work for miss blake's own health had suffered from her anxiety about her nephew and she was herself in need of care and rest but lizzie was never tired she read to morton for hours no matter how dry or heavy the book he wished to have read to him she wrote at his dictation and entered heart and soul into all his studies and plans for the advantage of his fellow-men was able to discuss the most abstruse questions of political economy and flung herself with all a woman's headlong enthusiasm into every philanthropic scheme her companionship which seemed more like the camaraderie of a young brother student than the society of a girl did much to lighten the tedium of that slow convalescence then she was so staunch and faithful and although she never of her own accord talked to morton about dulcie she always frankly and fully answered any questions which he chose to ask her never since that afternoon when death seemed so near and recovery so unlikely had morton expressed a wish to see dulcie 
but on more than one occasion he had questioned Lizzie about her. "'Sir Everard and his daughter are still at Osthorpe, I suppose?' he said one morning, when Lizzie had laid down her book, in order to give him the cup of strong beef tea, which was to be administered with rigid precision at eleven o'clock every morning, whether the patient liked it or not. "'Yes, they're still here.' "'Do you ever see her?' I saw her yesterday, coming away from the afternoon service. The new curate has instituted a daily service at half-past four, you know. He was going to make it five, I believe, but people told him it would interfere with five o'clock tea, and would never be popular with the ladies, who form the chief part of a weekday congregation. I see. And now they go to prayers first, and to tea and scandal afterwards. <laughs> How was Dulcie looking when you saw her? pale and grave and quiet oh not ill i hope oh no i do not know that she was looking ill but she looks older and graver than she used to look in happier days did you think she looked unhappy yes morton i will not tell you anything less than the truth i am sure she is unhappy poor child i am very sorry for her we have each our burden to bear what must be, must be. Morton told his aunt one day, when they were alone together, that his engagement had been cancelled at Sir Everard's desire. "'The man must be mad!' exclaimed Dora Blake impetuously. "'Can you, who have known him so long, who knew him in my father's lifetime, imagine no reason he might have for desiring to break the engagement?' asked Morton, watchful of his aunt's countenance. She remained silent for some moments with a look of trouble in her expressive face. What reason could there be, what reason dating from the past, which did not exist when the engagement was made? Oh, he may have yielded weakly to his daughter's wish for a time, till conscience awoke all at once and urged him to forbid our marriage. Conscience? Yes, Aunt Dora, conscience what but a conscientious scruple of some kind based on a guilty secret could constrain him to break his daughter's heart and mine but i am thankful to him for having taken the initiative if he had not broken the engagement i must have done it i could not have gone on suffering as i suffered wilfully blind to a fact which forced itself upon me at every turn sooner or later my scruples must have grown stronger than my love and I must by my own act have separated myself from Dulcie. How much harder for me to do so than for her father to part us. I ought to be grateful to him. It's the one honourable act of his life. I do not understand you, Morton, faltered Miss Blake. Oh, yes, you do, aunt. Your pale cheek, your troubled eye, tell me that you do understand my meaning. You have the light of the past to guide you. You know much that is hidden from me. You must, you do know, that Sir Everard Courtney murdered my father. Morton, how can you allege anything so horrible when that man's confession cleared Sir Everard for ever? Cleared him? Ah, then in your mind he was the suspected murderer until another confessed the crime. I will not say one word, Morton. Oh, yes, you suspected, you knew, and yet you allowed me to engage myself to Dulcie. 
What power had I to prevent that engagement? You had offered yourself to her before I knew that you had given her your heart. I had cherished other ideas, other hopes. The whole business came upon me as a surprise. As to my suspicions of Sir Everard, they were vague, shapeless, a mere undefinable terror to me, which I hardly dared own to myself. Vargas's confession and conviction set those horrible fears at rest for ever. To my mind, Vargas's confession opened a gulf, down which I hardly dared to look while Dulcie was my affianced wife. But now... Oh, you will not try to bring disgrace upon the father of the girl you love, for you do love her still, do you not, Morton? <laughs> With all my heart. Even if you had ceased to love her, if she were nothing to you but that which she is to all who know her, a lovely and amiable girl, it would be a horrible thing to inflict disgrace upon her by bringing a hideous accusation against her father. What evidence have you to sustain this frightful suspicion? None, or none of a tangible nature. Oh, God only knows what I shall do, said Morton. I speak to you as I would speak to no one else, Aunt Dora, for I know that you share my suspicions. Only because I knew that Everard Courtney had been deeply wronged. You forced me to speak of these things, Morton, to recall a past which were better buried and forgotten. You know how fondly I loved your father, yet I cannot deny that he dealt falsely and treacherously with Sir Everard Courtney. Be wise, then, Morton. Leave this sad story of the past in the shadow where it lies, and leave the punishment of your father's murderer to the great avenger. Morton was silent. This charge of falsehood and treachery brought against his father by one who had so deeply loved him was a heavy blow to the son. He knew Dora Blake's utter truthfulness, her strong sense of justice, and he knew that she would not bring such a charge as this against an idolised brother without undeniable evidence. Yet he ought perhaps to have been prepared for such a revelation. Could he at any moment have supposed that groundless, unprovoked jealousy had made Sir Everard turn assassin? Only the belief in his friend's treachery in a deep, irreparable wrong could have goaded a sane man to such a crime. How far Sir Everard's belief in Walter Blake's guilt might have been justified by facts, Morton had never asked himself until today. One image had ever been present to his mind, excluding every other consideration. The image of his murdered father, cut off in the prime and heyday of his life. No more was said either by aunt or nephew, but the recollection of that conversation sank deep in the young man's mind, and gave a new colour to his thoughts. Had it not been for Lizzie Hardman, he would in all likelihood have relapsed into that state of apathy and depression which had been the beginning of his dangerous illness. The mind, brooding perpetually upon one gloomy theme, would have again given way, but Lizzie would not allow him to be idle. She stimulated him in the pursuit of studies which were congenial to his mind and heart. She so warmly adopted his favourite ideas, so interested herself in his dearest schemes, that she infused new vigour and life into the old thoughts, and made the most utopian plans appear practicable and full of hope. She urged him to publish a pamphlet upon compulsory education, 
a subject which he had taken deeply to heart, and upon which he had original and peculiar views. She offered to be his amanuensis, as he was not yet strong enough to bear the fatigue of much penmanship. At first he was unwilling to inflict such a task upon her, and doubted his own ability to give free expression to his thoughts in dictation. But Lizzie's interest in his work seemed so unaffected, her willingness to help was so sincere, that, were it only to gratify her, he gave way, and the pamphlet was begun. First crude ideas were roughly jotted down, and then the theme rounded itself in the thinker's mind, and he began with a sentence worthy of Junius. Once begun, the work was easy. Morton lay on his sofa, looking out at the lilacs and laburnums, the gelder roses and pink may, and dictating his thoughts in measured syllables, while Lizzie, who was a neat and rapid penman, sat at her little table by one of the windows, far enough from the thinker for him to be almost unconscious of her presence. "'Do you know, Lizzie, you're more like a sister to me than either of my sisters?' Morton said one day. Lizzie was slow to acknowledge this compliment. "'I'm glad to be useful to you in any way,' she said at last, "'for I owe you and yours so much that it is a happiness to be able to pay the veriest trifle on account.' Oh, "'Don't be so horribly commercial, Lizzie. You owe us nothing, and need pay us nothing. I know you are auntie's right hand, and that she could not get on anyhow without you.' but it was not your usefulness I was thinking about when I said you were like a sister to me. An amanuensis or a reader can be got any day at so much an hour, so I am not going to be intensely grateful on that score. What I feel is your companionship, your power of sharing and understanding all my ideas, your perfect sympathy. They were sitting in the twilight after dinner in the drawing-room. The two sisters were on the lawn playing a tete-a-tete -tete game of croquet. Aunt Dora was reading by a distant window. Lizzie bent over her work, her face quite hidden in the dim light. "'What busy fingers!' exclaimed Morton. "'I don't think you know what idleness means.' "'I hope before we're many months older you'll be busy at Blackford electioneering,' said Lizzie with a laugh. "'What, you really think I ought to stand for Blackford at the first vacancy?' "'I'm sure of it.' You are the very man the Blackford people want to represent them. My cousin tells me that old Mr. Tilney, the Liberal member, talks of giving up his seat. He suffers from chronic asthma, poor man, and is ordered abroad every winter. So he might just as well resign his post to a man who can be useful to the town. Well, if Mr. Tilney vacate his seat, I will try my luck, Lizzie. I would do as much as that out of gratitude for all your goodness to me during the last six weeks. End of chapter 35